Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the letter from the House Progressive Caucus to President Biden, urging him to negotiate a settlement with Putin to end the Ukraine war that was withdrawn the next day, seemingly due to a fear that the signatories could appear to be on the same page as the pro-Trump Putin worshippers like Tucker Carlson, who are unwilling to continue providing support for the Ukrainian military. Joining us to discuss this unnecessary misfire by the House Progressive Caucus, which has consistently voted in favour of military aid to the Ukrainians and now could be seen as faltering, is is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications, and we will discuss his latest article at the American Prospect, The Ukraine Conundrum. Democrats ask, what's the end game? Then withdraw the question, which nonetheless persists. Then we'll get an assessment of last night's one and only debate in Pennsylvania for the key open United States Senate seat between the Democrat, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, and the Republican chosen by Donald Trump, the TV doctor, Mehmet Oz. Joining us is Dr. Terry Madonna, Senior Fellow for Political Affairs at Millersville University. He has written extensively about voters and voting behaviour and founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania, which was renamed the Franklin and Marshall College Poll. He was previously the pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News and many other newspapers and television stations in Pennsylvania, and we will discuss how much Fetterman's impairment as a result of a stroke hurt him compared to Oz's remark that, quote, I want women, doctors, and local political leaders involved in a woman's decision to have an abortion. Then finally, we'll look into the extent that Mohammed bin Salman strung Biden along, promising to reduce the price of oil only to stiff him after his infamous fist bump, which is revealed in an article at the New York Times, U.S. officials had a secret oil deal with the Saudis, or so they thought. Joining us is Shibli Talhami, the Enwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has served as advisor to the U.S. mission to the U.N. and served on the Iraq study group and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. He's the author of The Stakes, America in the Middle East, and The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion, and the Reshaping of the Middle East. And he had an article at the Brookings Institution back in July, It's Risky for Biden to Go to the Middle East. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large at The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is The Ukraine Conundrum. Democrats ask, what's the endgame? Then withdraw the question, which nonetheless persists. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson. Good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and Harold, of course, you're referring to a letter that was sent to the White House under the banner of the House Progressive Caucus to President Biden, urging him to try to negotiate a settlement of the Ukraine war with Vladimir Putin, and then literally 24 hours later, they withdrew the letter. And apparently the letter was drafted earlier in the midsummer before the Ukrainian counteroffensive, 
which has certainly changed the situation on the ground. So is there any explanation for this, apart from blaming, as the head of the caucus has blamed, a staff member? Well, uh, I mean, uh, let, let, let me just add one one thing to the setup that you just gave. The, the, the other thing is, is in terms of the timing of this, which is certainly not what the uh, signatories to the letter intended that it be released now, is that in recent weeks, the Republicans uh, and up to and including Kevin McCarthy, who is likely to be the next House Speaker, have said they want to uh, end aid to Ukraine. Uh, And so given that this was released two days ago, presumably without the knowledge of the majority, if not all, of the signatories to the to the letter, it, it appeared to be sort of almost inadvertently coordinated with the Republicans, which is really not what the Progressive Caucus wanted. And the Progressive Caucus, I mean, the letter also made clear, and it was made clear in a reiteration from the caucus uh, co-chair, Prem- uh, Pramila Jayapal, uh, this is before the letter w- was withdrawn, that they did not mean this to signal that they supported a diminution of aid to Ukraine. They just said to the Biden administration, you know, we want you to push negotiations, if at all possible, uh, more than you have. So um, in in that sense, I think the signatories were surprised uh, that it was released at this juncture, uh, that that was not helpful, particularly to the you know the cause they were they were recommending well not release at all surely how what's the point of releasing a, a dead letter uh, i i agree i mean look there's <laughs> there's really a mystery here which is uh you know it, it is not clear that um this letter if it had been circulated just now and not in june uh, would have gotten 30 signatories. So I don't, I don't know what the point of releasing it uh, now is, since it uh, is potentially a misrepresentation of some of the things that the signatories now believe. Uh, and even if it's not, uh, they certainly, I don't think that they would have thought that this was the right time to release it. Well, I'm certainly no defender of McCarthy, who's a spineless right. coward, but he actually talked about not giving Ukraine a blank check. And my understanding is that support for Ukraine, it polls at something like 85% of Americans support arming Ukraine. So it's not a done deal, right? I mean, if they take the House in, in a couple of weeks, they may have trouble cutting funds what do you think they may i mean i well, i would think the the senate uh which is uh you know i mean mcconnell uh you know if if he becomes a majority leader in the senate mcconnell is still in the uh, uh pre-trumpian populist phase of republican support american hegemony never mind the question of democracy as such since republicans don't necessarily support democracy at home anymore. So, uh, no, I mean, I don't think there'd be a a unified Republican position on this. But, you know, you could imagine the House Republicans saying, well, you know, we don't want to do it. And then, you know, that leads to a deal in which the proposed amount of aid is is reduced. But no, I think you're right that it, 
I don't think if even if the Republicans take both houses that we're looking at uh, uh, suddenly, a rever- you know, uh, the amount dropping is zero. That's not going to happen. But back to the peculiar letter that was posted. Uh, when was it Monday and rescinded? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, Tuesday. You know, blink and you miss it phenomenon. It was released Monday. It was uh, withdrawn Tuesday. Right. Well, I've always wondered, Harold, why it is that progressives in this country can't have sort of two thoughts at the same time. Isn't it possible to be both an idealist on domestic issues and a realist on foreign policy? Uh, yes, and that was, uh, as Scott Fitzgerald famously wrote, that the test of a first-class mind is to be able to hold two opposing ideas simultaneously. Absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, when progressives have really gone off uh, the deep end as, uh, you know, I mean, well, let, let, let's <laughs> let's take this uh, at, at its worst case. Uh, domestically, if you look at the Con- American Communist Party at its height in the 1930s and 40s, domestically, it was uh, doing great stuff. It was defending black rights before pretty much before anyone else was. It was providing the troops, which led to the organization of industrial unions, the CIO. And then it supported an absolute maniacal tyrant, Joseph Stalin, uh, in in the Soviet Union. And so, yeah, it would have been nice to have a little realism injected into uh, the the foreign policy side of what they were doing, because it... uh, canceled out uh, in, in the long term for the party's own credibility uh, the relatively good work it was doing domestically. So yes, that can be a real problem. Well, it is extraordinary that anybody would support Putin, frankly. And the fact that we already have people like Tucker Carlson, you know, cheerleaders for Putin, yeah. is pretty despicable. And to even be associated with that kind of clique is pretty embarrassing. Not that I'm saying that the letter necessarily is pro-Putin. No, it's not. On the other hand, how can you negotiate with this guy who's threatening nuclear weapons, coming up with this false flag thing? And today he uh, conducted a nuclear exercise. So he's clearly trying to influence the debate in the West and in the United States by raising the specter of nuclear war because he's losing on a conventional war. It's yeah, pretty exactly. obvious. Exactly. And, so, you know, we, we have our, our neo-fascists. Uh, you know, the, I think the first person on the American right who said, hey, Putin agrees with us in that he's anti-gay, anti-feminist, uh, you know, pro uh, some kind of vague, uh, you know, uh, nationalistic theocracy, et cetera. That was Pat Buchanan, and that has trickled down to the Tucker Carlsons of this world. And, you know, there's a handful of people still on the far left who, uh, uh, you know, uh, blame America first, although, was, you know, I mean, that the push uh, of NATO to uh, the Russia's border was probably not a great idea. George Kennan pointed that out when it happened. But you know, that hardly, as I wrote in this piece that, that you referenced, it wasn't like, uh, you know, anyone adduced the uh, anti-German parts of the Treaty of Versailles as a defense for the 
Nazi war criminals. And, you know, I think you only go so far and not really very convincingly when you blame what Putin is doing on the United States. Uh, There's plenty to blame the United States for, but the atrocities going on in Ukraine uh, really are Putin, not, not us. Right, and if you lived in Russia, you'd be living in a police state. There'd be no freedom. Right. I mean, this is what I'm always puzzled by, is that these dictators that some people on the left make excuses for, the first people they jailed are the people like them. Oh, Dis- absolutely. Dissidents, artists, yeah. poets, writers. Yeah. They're the first and, people and that Castro jailed and Putin jails, you know. Yeah, and, and these are the people who are, uh, either have recently fled uh, from Russia or are trying to. I mean, you know, they understand uh, what it is to live under, under that kind of system. And it would certainly behoove all of our comrades here to understand it as well. Because, yeah, the first people, you know, uh, that folks like this go after are often, you know, leftists, but not and the kind of leftists that's in the government, you know. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's all a little bewildering. But this seems to be, you know, uh, a, uh, a constant uh, theme we get from portions of, uh, portions of the left. So, you know, it's difficult to, to say what would actually dispel it. Well, wouldn't something at least dispel it to make it clear that Putin is a fascist? Then you can't yeah, you would fascism. think so. You would think so, and and you know the fact that he's he's getting support from American fascists like Tucker Carlson seems to be a sign uh, that you know if you if you think you're uh, associating yourself with uh, uh, Lenin and Trotsky, uh, you know you you really need to think again a little harder. That's not so, who Putin is. So, what do we make of? The co-chair, Jayapal's excuses, I mean, blaming it on on an aide. She represents a part of Seattle, right? And, and remember, yeah, Hen- and Henry it, Jackson was she's the also, set- She's also up to now been, I think, very politically smart and very politically adept. I mean, one of the larger stories of the last several years is the Democratic Party largely moving to the left on, on bread and butter issues, on economic issues, a la Bernie Sanders. And she's been very good in helping sort of lead that uh, evolution in the House without, uh, you know, I mean, the, the getting real clout for the Progressive Caucus without having it being kind of an oppositional body. So th- this whole thing is kind of surprising and goes against sort of, you know, the uh, I think the valid reputation she had built up up until this time. And, you know, whether a staff member did it or not, I mean, we have no way of knowing at this point. Uh, but it's uh, surprising, I think, to people who've just watched her career that, uh, you know, that this has happened on her watch, if not directly at her direction. Well, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie fits that definition that I put forward a, a little while ago, Harold. And yeah. That is that he's an idealist on domestic politics, but a realist on foreign policy. He's... He's always Absolutely. had Putin's and, number. You know, I would I would argue also that if you look at America's needs, he's an idealist and a realist on domestic policy. Uh, he, but he, he understands how you push the envelope. But yeah, he doesn't have any illusions about uh, Putin or or any of those folks. And he's been he's been very good. And, and that was particularly shown 
in his uh, condemning of Venezuela under uh, under Hugo Chavez and, and then Maduro. I mean, you know, he uh, doesn't fall for the alleged romance of presumably left leaders in uh, in developing world countries who uh, who turn into uh, you know really oppressive tyrants. So yeah, Bernie right. Bernie is Bernie is hip to that. Right, <laughs> and. The refugees from Venezuela then were used by another proto-fascist here in this country, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, well, and on, you know, I mean, it, it, it's kind of bewildering to me because, I mean, after all, Florida, you know, the, to the degree that the Republicans have support uh, in any part of uh, Latino America uh in the latino us it's it's refugees from uh from cuba so suddenly how they're now you know uh treating refugees from venezuela who i think are in many ways analogous in some ways to the refugees from cuba you know is is just just a, a sign of how narrowly xenophobic the republican party uh and presumably the republican base has become so just in the last couple of minutes then, Harold Morrison, my sense is that that when the progressives shoot themselves in the foot, as happened with this letter yeah. from the House Progressive Caucus, which was issued and then withdrawn the next day, it resounds, I think, further into the sort of moderates and independents in this country who ultimately don't embrace progressive ideas because they either don't think progressive do their homework or that they don't think things through. Is that a problem? Well, yeah, I don't know if it's for those reasons, uh, because I don't know that moderates and conservatives uh, uh, place mm-hmm. any higher premium on thinking things through than, than progressives do. But, you know, I mean, it... Uh, well, maybe it, I should say it, they're, but, a but it shows, they're a little naive. They're a little naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it does reinforce the image of, of naivete, which... Uh, as you know, we just were talking about Bernie Sanders. Certainly, it does not characterize, uh, you know, uh, all progressives by any means. And uh, you know, it, it, I think you know the left can point to the right and say, uh, you know, <laughs> speaking of delusional ideas, uh, you guys, you, you guys got them tremendously. But you know, look, we, we, the percentage of Americans who self-identify as liberal or progressive has never been usually more than about a third in the abstract. And so that means, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing the rock uphill. And when you're pushing the rock uphill, you don't want to uh, inflict injuries upon yourself and have the rock go sliding down. So that's, that's a problem. And naivete is certainly an accusation uh, frequently leveled at the left. And every now and then it's correct. So just in closing, are we going to hear something or have we heard something from some of the signatories like Mark Pocan and Jamie Raskin, who I, I understand were furious about this letter being released? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you, you know, they may or they may they may just think even bringing further attention to it now is is just prolongs the story. So, I mean, there's tactical considerations I and mean, it's pretty clear that that the people like Raskin are, are appalled by this. I suspect most of the signatories at this point uh, were just appalled by it. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, an interesting question is, uh, 
whether Jayapal will be able to, you know, retain her leadership of the Progressive Caucus. I mean, I don't think nothing's going to happen between now and Election Day. After Election Day, we'll see. And, you know, of course, there are whole party leadership uh, questions that the Democrats will then uh, be dealing with as well. And Jayapal was hoping you know, to get maybe a slot in the leadership. I think this is pretty much uh, made that uh, a remote possibility. So we'll see. Well, Harold Myerson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Harold Myerson, who's one of the nation's best known progressive columnist and editor-at-large at the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at the American Prospect is The Ukraine Conundrum. Democrats ask, what's the endgame? Then withdraw the question, which nonetheless persists. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into last night's U.S. Senate debate in Pennsylvania and how much John Fetterman's impairment as a result of a stroke hurt him compared to Dr. Oz's remark that I want women doctors and local political leaders involved in a woman's decision to have an abortion. And then you go and you throw me out Send me no letter I'm getting better Send me no letter I'm getting better See some other band I'm top prime cut of meat I'm your choice Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Terry Madonna, who's a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University. He has written extensively about voters and voting behavior and founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania, which was renamed the Franklin and Marshall College Poll. And he was previously a pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News and many other newspapers and television stations in Pennsylvania. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Terry Madonna. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Terry. And the debate last night, the one and only debate between Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and the Republican challenger, uh, Dr. Oz, who was promoted and I guess chosen by Donald Trump. It did not go well for Fetterman, uh, and I take it it didn't actually go that well for Oz, but um, reading comments from the right-wing press that are almost gleeful, Tucker Carlson is just crowing. So did <laughs> did John Fetterman really look that impaired? I mean, was it embarrassing? Well, there isn't any doubt that uh, John Fetterman stumbled throughout the uh, interview he got uh he twisted words. He couldn't complete sentences. He used the wrong words. Remember, he has an auditory impairment uh, caused by his stroke. And so going into this debate, the real test was, would he be able, would he be able to function? 
to answer the questions from the moderators, to engage in a discussion with Dr. Oz. And so the big news out of the debate last night was not the issues. And there are significant issues and differences between the candidates. But the question is that is in most folks' mind right now is, could John Fetterman serve if elected to the United States Senate from Pennsylvania? His long-term, his, his long-term ability is not so much in question, but what, but what is in question was how he performed last evening. He's likely to get better over time. And, and the other aspect of this is, should he have even said he would do the single the one and only debate with Dr. Oz. Well, um, he did make that choice, and they yeah. did try and help him, did they not, with yeah. this caption yeah, on a screen? That's, absolute, that's absolutely right. Uh, the problem he has is with hearing, and, and so the auditory problem he has is with hearing. And so they had this captioning, he could read the questions off of a screen. Now, afterwards, he said that the screen was jumbled, but the folks uh, who, who conducted the debate insisted that there was no problem with the screen at all. They obviously could read the screen as well. And I think that was his answer to, uh, you know, jumbling of words, uh, mispronouncing words, using the wrong words. Uh, the inability to complete sentences. Uh, that's been mostly in the news about this debate. Well, back in August, Fetterman had a nine-point lead over Oz. Right. As of what, today, I guess, right. Real Clear Politics poll tracker says he's, his lead has shrunk to 1.3%, which is within the margin of error. So that's if... He performed badly, or people, uh, particularly independent voters, thought that he's not ready to be a senator. Then this is pretty catastrophic, isn't it? Oh, certainly, because of how close this election is. One of the reasons that Dr. Oz has trailed Fetterman is that Oz's support among Republicans in the polls has been lower than Fetterman's support has been among Democrats. The other aspect is, is unfavorables, favorable, unfavorable. That's really a popularity index. Uh, Dr. Oz's unfavorables were much higher than John Fetterman's were. And so what we're going to have to see is to what extent uh, that changes in the course of the polls that get produced after uh, yesterday's debate. Now, one of the things that I think is important is that Oz at one point trailed by double digits. He had a brutal primary. He was not a resident of the state of Pennsylvania when he declared his candidacy for the United States Senate. And much, much of his failure to be a resident of this state was used by his primary opponent, uh, a guy named Dave McCormick, who was an edge, a hedge fund CEO. He called him Dr. Hollywood. And the biggest attack that Oz had overcome was the carpetbagger. He's not one of us. 
And so it took Oz week after week after week after week to close the gap to within the margin of error of the polls, which is where the election uh, for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania stands as we speak. And so we're going to have to wait and see if indeed Oz picks up support, his numbers, uh, his support among Republicans, his support among undecided voters. We're going to have to wait and see if he gains very much. I don't think so much it's that Fetterman will lose among Democrats, although we don't know for sure. It's whether Oz can pick up more support among Republicans, among undecided voters, and among voters in our state who are registered as independent. So Fetterman seemed to stress the abortion issue. Correct. Uh, and there's no question that Oz didn't do himself any favors when he right. said that in terms of abortion, he said, I, I want women doctors and local political leaders to To make decide. the decision. Yeah, I that's mean, right. Yeah, that, that was a, there was no doubt that he stumbled over. I stumbled over the abortion question. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And he got by saying local political leaders. I don't know what that means. In Pennsylvania, for example, we have a state abortion control act. It's been in uh, the uh, legislative books for a couple of decades. And what it says is that is that an, a woman can have an abortion up to 24 weeks after her last menstrual cycle. And then there's the exceptions for rape, incest, and to save the, and the health of the mother. And so that didn't come up at all by Dr. Oz when he said local, let local political people decide. I don't know what that means because we have a state law that's been in effect for some time. On the other hand, when it came to the question of energy and natural gas production in the state of Pennsylvania is a huge part of the economy, uh, John Fetterman, who was against it earlier in his career. Against fracking, when, you mean? Yeah, against fracking. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What, uh, what John Fetterman said was he was against natural gas production the way it's done now with deep well drilling known as fracking. He had been against it, and then when he decided to run, he became for it because he understood the significance this issue has uh, statewide. Uh, Fracking natural gas production is a huge part of the economy of the state, and some progressives are for fracking. Governor Wolf, the Democratic governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, is for fracking. He wants to tax it. He's concerned about uh, the environmental effects from uh, the leakage from the pipes that carry natural gas from southwestern part of our state into the eastern part of the state where the natural gas is transported uh, overseas and to other parts of the United States. So each of them had a moment where that didn't serve them very well. So given that Donald Trump had a big role in promoting Dr. Oz, to be the candidate. And as you say, he got a little bit wounded in the primary debates, um, but still squeaked by, and he spent months now closing the lead that uh, Fetterman started out with. But he was asked at the end of the debate, would he support Donald Trump if he decided to run for president? And he said, I would support Donald Trump. 
if he decided yeah. to run for president. Do you think yeah. that hurt him? Well, I don't. I, uh, I mean, the Trump base in Pennsylvania among Republicans is still uh, and still pretty strong. The problem with the Trump base in Pennsylvania is winning the suburbs, the suburbs outside of big cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but also smaller cities as well. Uh, Lancaster, York, Harrisburg, just to name three, where the voters there tend to be uh, tend not to be supportive of Trump. They tend to be college educated. There's a high percentage of college educated women who live in those in, in those uh, uh, suburbs, along with uh, millennials as well. And what's sort of fascinating is that Dr. Oz, when he has campaigned throughout the state of Pennsylvania, on the whole, does not bring up Trump. He doesn't raise, he doesn't start out by saying, I'm, I'm a Trump guy, I'm a Trump supporter. He's trying to walk the middle ground. He's not denigrating Trump as we saw last evening, but it's not as though he's out campaigning as I'm a Trump guy. I'm a Trump candidate. He's avoided doing that. So what effect is the the nominee for governor on the Republican side having who's an extreme right winger and, um, and a strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what effect is he's trailing by about nine points to the current attorney general of the state of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, and he's trailed in every poll. The difficulty that the Republican candidate for governor has, Doug Mastriano, is that his positions are so conservative that many Republicans have walked away from him. About more than a dozen former Pennsylvania state lawmakers have endorsed Josh Shapiro. And many Republicans in the, quote, establishment, end quote, have walked away from Mastriano because of his of his positions. He's uh, against abortion, even to rape, incest, and to save the life of the mother. He's opposed to gay marriage. He also wants to take, to reduce the funding for public schools in our state. Currently, each student gets about $19,000 a year. Under Mastriano's position, they would get 9000 and he wants to get rid of the property tax. That is Mastriano. That would that would literally virtually close the doors to public education in the state. He also went down on January 6th to uh, the Capitol. He took two buses down. Now, he did not go into the Capitol itself. I want to make that clear. But he did go beyond where he was supposed to. So he's generally considered way too conservative for a moderate voters in the state. But is he having any effect on the senatorial race? Is he dragging us down so. in any way? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Uh, they're pretty much running independent campaigns. Right. Well, I didn't. As I say, I didn't see the debate. I've just <laughs> been reading up on it. You saw the debate, so yeah. And you're nonpartisan and a pollster. You so, got it. I've been doing this a long time. I get called by liberal as well as conservative media, and I say the same thing. <laughs> right. Well, then just tell us what your impressions were of both candidates. Well, the debate the, the debate performance by John Fetterman literally dominates the entire uh, the discussion over what took place last night. That's the bottom line here. It, uh, 
it in many ways uh, detracts from the issues that the two candidates debated. And the issues are obviously important, both in the state and nationally. Uh, one of them is going to get elected to the United States Senate, where their positions will will play an important an important role. They might well decide which party controls the United States Senate. But having having said that, the uh, the aftermath of of the Senate debate has been John Fetterman's health, and more questions have been raised about his health, and they have continually been raised since he had the stroke. Uh, four days before the May primary in Pennsylvania. And now, given what happened last evening, uh, they're going to continue to be raised. Well, my understanding is, uh, Terry, that Federman has been performing much better on the stump and in interviews uh, with media than he did last well, night. So, Well, he hasn't done a lot of interviews with the media. He's done a handful of individual talks that have been relatively short and he stumbled a bit over them, but I I'm not going to disagree that he did better in those, but remember we're talking about a debate. We're not talking about, you know, questions from the audience or questions from a reporter or two. We're talking about a debate with tremendously high stakes, given how close the election between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman happens to be as as we speak. So was there anything the Democrats could have done to replace this candidate? I mean, well, uh, yeah, I mean, if he, yeah, sure. There's a process after, after he after he had the stroke, he remained in confinement for several months. If he if he had decided then he wanted to get out, there's a process. Uh, about finding a replacement that could have been used. And that question, by the way, has been raised. And any any names come up? None that I've heard of, but just the whole process, uh, you know, just the whole process right. uh, that, that could have been used. But presumably there are other candidates in oh, on the course, Democratic side in people. Pennsylvania. Oh, sure. Sure. Oh, okay. All right. Well... It's not good for the Democrats. I mean, they're trying no, to hold on to the Senate. No, obviously not. No, no, you and can't say that it is. And they're not doing well uh, with their candidate in Wisconsin. And on top of this, yeah. in Pennsylvania, that's... I, I think guess Nate, Silver, Nate Silver has uh, uh, re redone his uh, the way he figures out uh, the percentages, and he has lowered the percentages for the Democrats winning control of the Senate. I think he still has them winning, but it's much lower. You can check that out on his blog if you want. Right. Okay. Well, the Democrats, you know, rather than be <laughs> dispirited and depressed by the performance of Fetterman, they, they ought to be more motivated, right? Because this yeah. is more of a more of a challenge. They've got to get the vote out. And uh, it looks like they're getting the vote out in Georgia, so maybe they can do that across yeah. the, well, across it's the all, country. Yeah, right now, it's all about yeah, the base votes. You're exactly right. And remember, historically, we've had 19 midterms since World War II. The party that's held the presidency has lost 17 of them. Barack Obama was elected in 08. In 2010, during the Great Recession, the Democrats lost 63 seats in the House. In 2018, after Donald J. Trump was president for two years, the Republicans lost 40 
seat in the state house. No one, I don't, I, and with the experts that I've read, I don't think anybody expects that the, those numbers will uh, occur this year. Well, Terry Madonna, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, my pleasure. Have a good one. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Terry Madonna, who's a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University. He's written extensively about voters and voting behavior and founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania, which was renamed the Franklin and Marshall College Poll. And he's previously been the pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News and many other newspapers and television stations in Pennsylvania. We're going to take a B-Station break and back looking to the extent to which Mohammed bin Salman strung Biden along, promising to reduce the price of oil, only to stiff him after his infamous fist bump. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up Broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shibli Talhami, who is the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has served as an advisor to the U.S. Mission to the United Nations and served on the Iraq Study Group and as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State. He's the author of The Stakes, America in the Middle East and the World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and Reshaping the Middle East. And he had an article at the Brookings Institution back in July, It's Risky for Biden to Go to the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shibli Telhami. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Shibli. And I bring up the article that you wrote back in July in, at, at the Brookings Institution, It's Risky for Biden to Go to the Middle East, because today the New York Times has an article U.S. officials had a secret oil deal with the Saudis, or so they thought, which reveals that top Biden administration officials went to Saudi Arabia before Biden went there for the famous fist bump. Amos Hostein and Brett McGurk of the National Security Council. And apparently, Mohammed bin Salman had assured these top Biden officials that he would make more oil available uh, to lower the price at the pump, and then he got his fist bump with Biden, and then he turned around and colluded with Putin to stiff the United States and stiff Biden and the Democrats. So you were right to say it was risky of Biden to go to the Middle East. Yes. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the article you were referring to, which originally came out on the Washington Post, was based on a public opinion poll. So there wasn't just an opinion that I was presenting. Uh, we did a national poll, and we actually did a an experiment in that poll in which we basically gave no information and asked the public whether they support the trip or not. And then 
we use some of uh, invoking Israel in one case and invoking Saudi Arabia in another case to see if uh, uh, using Israel or Saudi Arabia uh, got more support or opposition for the trip. And so it was fascinating because no matter how you ask that question, there were only about a quarter of Americans that supported the trip. And when you invoked Israel, uh, then there's more opposition to the trip. And when you invoke Saudi Arabia, there was even a little more opposition to the trip, uh, uh, especially among Republicans. So, um, the, so basically, it was hard to see how, why, why they were going there. And in fact, I did recommend, and I, I, uh, I wrote um, somewhere else, that I think Biden should cancel the trip um, because I didn't see a particular benefit. One reason was I didn't see that he was going to impact Israeli politics in any shape or form if he thought he was going to help, you know, uh, uh, keep Netanyahu out of uh, power. Uh, I thought that whatever he does, that's not going to impact internally. And uh, in Saudi Arabia, his visit wasn't going to affect the oil prices in the long term. And uh, and in the meanwhile, he was going to lose because he's got the people who didn't like him either going to Israel or to Saudi Arabia. So what's the what's there to gain? Uh, the fascinating thing about Saudi Arabia is that, at the, of course, the public knew uh, the oil connection without even alluding to it directly. But nonetheless, the opposition, when you said um, he went to Saudi Arabia, the, the number, the opposition increased, even though the oil prices at the time were high, the energy costs were high, in part because I think the public is prepared to pay a certain price for uh, defending certain values. And I think they... We now see that uh, the administration is is paying a price. The question, of course, in the recent exchanges that you refer to, this leak, the story in the New York Times about quote a secret deal with the Saudis about um, not uh, doing any cuts before the end of the year. And this is interesting because this was not certainly known, but just a uh, right after the Saudis and OPEC Plus uh, announced the oil cuts that uh, then generated a very strong reaction from the White House and, and certainly focused on the Saudis um, uh, and their decision, uh, the Saudi foreign ministry pushed back with a very strong argument against uh, the Biden administration's statement. And they referred to quote, a, some request about postponing the cuts by a month. And that was a little bit strange because we didn't know that anything of that sort was taking place. But maybe... In that statement, they might be confirming the fact that there may have been an understanding uh, that um, there would be a uh, uh, the, the cuts would be postponed, and that they had come to a conclusion that uh, that's not worthwhile for them. So that that's kind of interesting confirmation, perhaps. I don't know if that statement in the Saudi uh, that came out of the Saudi Foreign Ministry uh, was referring to the same quote secret agreement that the New York Times are reporting. Well, it's no, it's no secret that Mohammed bin Salman is a huge admirer of Putin's, and so is Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE. And there's no, it's also no secret that both Putin and MBS would like to, Trump to come back. So the New York Times is reporting that, again, Brett McGurk and Amos Hochstein of the National Security Council went as advance men, if you will, before Biden's trip, and that normally happens where they basically agree what they're going to agree on so that there are no surprises. And then Biden gets there. He does the fist bump, which is what MBS wants out of it. And then MBS turns around and stiffs him. 
I mean, that well, appears to know, be what happened. Unfortunately, too, the, 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 the Biden administration obviously did not handle it very well. Uh, because if you recall, uh, the, the first statement by the president related to that upcoming trip, he declared that this was not about oil. It was, quote, about helping Israel. And, and there was a large element of that because the Israelis were the ones who were urging him to go. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Yes, there was oil, obviously, in the background, but the president ultimately was persuaded by the Israelis to go. The reason why the Israelis wanted him to go was twofold. One was they wanted him uh, to, you know, obviously uh, uh, help uh, persuade the Saudis to normalize relations with them. That's number one. But more importantly, they wanted to project that they were able to bring an American Democratic president uh, to visit Saudi Arabia uh, and to help them, that there is bipartisan support. They were able, of course, they were, they were instrumental in persuading the Trump administration uh, to have the president uh, make his first visit uh, to Saudi Arabia. And in this particular case, he's seen in, you know, in the Arab world as, as, you know, they're the ones who are really essentially helping persuade a Democratic president to do the same. So they, they stood to gain in terms of perception, both within the Democratic Party here as having bipartisan support for, for Israel and in the Arab world as being seen, the Israelis can deliver and the shortest path from the Arab world to Washington goes through Israel. So they stood a lot to gain from that. And the president played into that. The president essentially perhaps uh, thinking that the Democrats are more likely to support him uh, if they thought he was doing it for Israel than for oil. Uh, but in fact, the polling showed that both, both Israel and Saudi Arabia had strikes against them among the Democratic uh, public, according to that poll that we wrote about then. But Shibli Talhami, I'm finding it hard to understand how a veteran politician like Biden, and it's true, he's always been a huge supporter of Israel, why he would prioritize Israel improving its ties with Saudi Arabia for whatever that will gain, as opposed to the self-survival of his presidency and of the Democratic Party, because if the price of gas is high in uh, you know the last two weeks before they go to the poll, and it certainly is here in California, people, they're not necessarily that sophisticated about how they vote. They just vote with their pocketbook, and they're angry, and they're told that Biden's responsible for inflation and everything else. I mean, it's just so obvious to me well, I, that this I, is... Yeah. A, a bad deal and that the U.S. got stiffed. I mean, why Why is Senator Blumenthal and Senator Chris Murphy screaming, and so is Senator Chuck Schumer, that the Saudis have betrayed us and they're helping finance Putin's war in Ukraine? Well, obviously that was not the way it was seen by um, by the Biden decision, either helping Israel or, uh, you know, or not. I mean, I think they, they saw as they could benefit from both ends. Uh, clearly, they thought it would help them a little bit, at least on oil, at least it wouldn't hurt them. Uh, and then they would score with at, at least Democratic elites in Congress who do to more often than not, uh, you know, uh, want to see, in fact, there's almost unanimity among Democratic elites who want to see normalization between Israel and the Arab states. So that's not, you know, um, something that they thought they would pay a price for. Uh, with public opinion, 
I happen to think the public um, is far more complex in its view of these issues than just straightforward pocketbook. I'll give you an example. I mean, I think in this particular case, when the, the more you said he was going to Saudi Arabia, the more the public was opposed to it, even though some part of the narrative was he was doing it in order to bring down the oil prices, which was were extremely high at the time. And so and that, in fact, had been kind of a, a, a media narrative about why he's going to Saudi Arabia. And yet the, the minute you mentioned that, the public opposed it more because of the human rights issue, uh, even though they they presumably they may have expected lower oil prices. So the public sometimes can be more principled than people assume. It doesn't show up in the ranking of issues. I'll give you another example, which is in a recent poll we did about Ukraine. Well, of course, when you ask the public, name the top issue of 12 issue, foreign policy ranks like 10 in our list. Uh, inflation is up there, number one, pretty much for across the board. And then when you ask people, are, are you prepared to pay a price in higher inflation for supporting Ukraine? You have 57% of the American public in our most recent poll in October uh, saying, yes, we are prepared to pay a higher price, even inflation, in order to support Ukraine. And yet foreign policy doesn't show up on that list. It shows up like 10 uh, you know, behind almost every major domestic issue and economic issue, including inflation and energy. So I think the, 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 public here, the public has a more nuanced assumption. They may not analyze it directly, but there are certain instincts about what they like and they don't like. And the values issue comes into play and certainly does with democratic publics. But Shibri Talhami, the fact remains, though, surely, that both Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin want Trump to come back. And there's no secret that... Both, no, that's absolutely true. And that MBS and MBZ and the Emirates... In fact, MBZ was just in Moscow singing Putin's praises. MBS sees Putin as kind of a mentor. And we're also learning recently that in terms of OPEC plus cutting production... Apparently, the Russians were surprised by the extent to which the Saudi Arabians wanted to cut production. In fact, they compromised at 2 million barrels a day, and the Saudis were prepared to cut even more. So this is what I'm so puzzled about. Why would the Democrats and Biden not have self-preservation in mind here? Why would they allow themselves to to get absolutely, you know, posed? I think they, they erred. As I, you know, I, I was critical of that trip, as you know, as I, we said earlier. But I, I do think the following is true, which is that um, rulers in the Arab world, particularly in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, um, uh, they definitely have been more supportive Republican presidents. They supported Trump when he was president. They hoped he would win the first time. They still hope he will come back. Uh, and and there is no question they prefer a Republican. And that and add to that list, by the way, Netanyahu in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, who might be, yet become prime minister again after the, next, the upcoming Israeli elections. Uh, he, too, has had a strong uh, preference for Republicans and would certainly uh, probably prefer um, Trump. So you have leaders, uh, you know, um, who uh, are rooting for Trump to come back. Uh, or if not Trump, at least a Republican president. And, and clearly, 
we have we know from various steps that they had taken in the prior election. I, I have a co-authored forthcoming book on the uh, Trump and Obama presidencies that carries into the Biden presidency in dealing with the Middle East. And we have done a lot of research where there, there were many steps that were taken uh, even before the Trump election and the early years of Trump election to uh, support. To, to support the Trump presidency and to, to hope that Trump will get elected. So that's not a secret. That's, that's clear. Uh, now, the question is whether this particular move was done uh, specifically uh, to, to any way punish Biden for his uh, statements, uh, even despite going to Saudi Arabia that were critical of, of the Saudis on human rights, uh, whether they were done to help Putin uh, whether they were done to help uh, uh, Trump uh, uh, or Republicans get an upper hand uh, on the eve of the midterm elections. Uh, that's all, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly a legitimate question. They also have uh, economic reasons, obviously, that benefit them. Uh, there's no question that they're right about that. The fascinating story about the Saudis, that if if it weren't for the human rights issues, you know, they would actually have in the third world, in the Arab world, in the Middle East, in Muslim majority countries, they would have a lot of support in part because actually a lot of people think it's okay for them to stand up to the United States. But because they have so many strikes, even in dealings with issues in the region and at home, uh, that is that is muting that. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, leaders in, in, in the Arab world uh, who had were seen to be standing up to the United States were actually rewarded in public opinion. That doesn't seem to be happening in this case. Mushibli Tohami, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And Bye. again, I'm speaking with Shibli Talhami, who's the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has served as an advisor to the United States Mission to the United Nations and served on the Iraq Study Group. And as a senior advisor to the United States Department of State, he's the author of The Stakes, America in the Middle East and The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and Reshaping of the Middle East. And he had an article at the Brookings Institution and at Washington Post back in July, it's risky for Biden to go to the Middle East. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.